Good morning. That was, uh, that was awesome. I was sitting there thinking uh, <clears throat> about 10 years that I was in South San Francisco, and we had nothing like that. Nothing. I led a lot of the singing. That tells you something. We had the Do Lord Choir. But you know, it's all sweet unto the Lord if it is done with the right heart. And uh, it is precious to sing his melodies, the, to kind of express what he's planted in our hearts. Uh, this morning, Christine mentioned First Fruits this uh, coming Sunday. And for the next uh, four Sundays, we'll be celebrating first fruits, giving our first and best unto the Lord. And I'm doing a, a series of messages called, Will You Marry Me? And I hope that you'll be here every Sunday. We've got some special things planned. It's going to be a great time together in the Lord. I've been working really hard, so it'd mean a lot to me personally if you'd come and hear what God has put on my heart uh, for these messages. Will you marry me? This morning, we're looking at our vision statement, our mission statement, if you will, inspiring Christ-likeness. And I thought, just put it all out there. You can see up there uh, uh, behind me on the screen uh, how to fill in those blanks. But the hands behind me, those icons, if you will, those emblems, uh, reaching out, raising up, reverencing Christ together. We're reaching out to others. We're raising up one another. We're reverencing Christ together. Those are, if you will, the priorities of Grace Community Church. Those are the things that keep us focused, keep us on track, keep our eyes on the right things, putting the first things first. And those notions of reaching out to others Reaching out in the name of Jesus Christ. Being Christ to others. Sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to those around us, to our families, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to people that we meet on a, on a plane or a bus. Reaching out. Evangelism, if you, if, if you will. That's a focus. That's something that's a part of what we're to be all about as followers of Jesus Christ. And raising up one another, discipling one another, uh, showing people around us in the community of Jesus Christ the way. Uh, iron sharpening iron. One believer encouraging and sharpening another. And then, of course, reverencing Christ together, worshiping Him, giving Him His rightful place in our lives. Not just when we're together, but certainly uh, when we're together, that is something that is special. And I want to speak to these things a little bit this morning. You can, you know, I could pull from all over the New Testament because these ideas are central to the New Testament, central to the church, central to the gospel 
And uh, this morning, I wanted us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I'm going to read verses 23 all the way through chapter 11, verse 1. Chapter 10, beginning at verse 23, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, and then chapter 11, verse 1. Let me just mention this. Paul has been talking about an issue raised by those believers like us that were in the church at Corinth, in the great city of Corinth. And the issue had to do with meat. (laughs) They were meat eaters. Eating meat that had been previously offered to idols. Meat that had been brought by people and offered to idols, and then that meat would be taken to the marketplace and sold. And the question was, is it right for Christians to eat this meat? And the issue is not only if it's okay or not okay, but some who have come out of idolatry are really kind of it's a bigger stumbling block for them if they see someone else in the marketplace that's a believer in the church buying meat that has been previously offered to idols. And so Paul spends chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10 discussing this issue, and this is the kind of the summary. This is the, the, the capsule of what he's been saying. So let's look at verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God just as I try to please 
everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. What moves someone to talk like that? It's an earnest question. It's been on my mind all week. Now you have to understand, it's Paul. So I expect him to talk like that. But I've been reading, and I, I, you know, I'm not suggesting that because I read this, you have to read this, but I've been reading an ancient contemporary of Paul. He was a Stoic philosopher. His name is Epictetus. And at one point, he writes, and this is a beautiful thing. I hear so many wonderful things from him. He says, do not look for your blessings outside, but look for them within yourselves. Otherwise, you will not discover them. That, that holds great encouragement for me. Because I realize that there is a transaction that has to take place inside of me if I'm really going to comprehend the good things around me. And sometimes it's really something that happens inside, not outside at all. In fact, he's saying if it isn't happening inside, it's like the, you know, the fellow believer who often says, choose to be happy. You make your own happiness. Just reminded me, um, Saddleback Church, Pastor Rick Warren is preaching on happiness, and that's his theme. Because it's an act of faith. It's an act of apprehension. It's an act of awareness. So that's a good thing. Do not look for your blessings outside, but look for them within yourselves. Otherwise, you will not discover them. But what does Paul say? This is his contemporary. I like reading Epictetus. He gives me kind of another window on the world in which he lived, the world in which Paul lived, the world in which the New Testament was written, the way they looked at Rome and all things Roman and that empire at that time. But what does Paul say? If Epictetus, who's really a mighty force. He was a, he was a slave. And because of his slavery, he had a wounded hip and he limped, but he became a stoic philosopher. People would travel to hear him speak. He, he's a voice to be reckoned with. But what does Paul say? Paul says, I try to please all in all ways, looking not for my own advantage, but that of many, so that they may be saved. Copy me as I copy Christ. Who says, hey, you can do anything, it's legal, it's lawful. But give thought to whether it's helpful. Who's helpful? If it's lawful, it's helpful to me. I can do whatever I want, right? 
But Paul says, no, you should have a law within yourself that's in a sense gauged, influenced, swayed by others. Does it build them up, he says. And I'm thinking to myself, really, we were used to that. That's our song. That's the Christian message. But really, where does that come from? Yes, he had an extraordinary experience on the Damascus Road. He had an experience with the risen Christ, and I have not had that. He was an apostle, an apostle, and I, I am not an apostle. So is it because he had an extraordinary experience and he was an apostle that he says things like that? I mean, is he just kind of wired in a unique and special way? Is he somehow on another level than you and me? Somebody asks him about eating meat. And he saw the risen Christ and he's an apostle. Why doesn't he say, my goodness, you children, get your minds off such trivial, petty things. I'm an apostle. We deal with more important stuff than meat offered to idols. He gives three chapters to it. And I think, where did that come from? Is he special? Is he, is he advising us of things that we can't do? That we can't be? Where's that come from? Have you had a Damascus experience? I haven't. I think the closest thing to a Damascus experience for me, I'm just thinking in terms of experiences, life-changing, life-rocking experiences. The closest thing to a Damascus experience for me is love at first sight. Have you experienced that? I was reading a book that had been lent to me by Bob Goff called Love Does. Highly recommend it. I think it's in the third or fourth chapter. He's describing, I, he lives in a nice place, I guess. It's, there's a, like, a, like a cove or something. There's a body of water. Maybe it's a big kind of lake or something. Like some of the housing areas here have a body of water that they're around in. And I imagine the house sloping down, and he says there's a grass walkway there, and couples walk along that walkway in the evening holding hands. He says he and his wife often sometimes sit on the porch and hold hands too. The sun's low in the sky. I can picture that. And this, this young man walks along. He's all by himself. And he stops and he waves at them, 
just as sometimes other couples would stop and wave, and then they from their porch would wave back. But this young man starts waving, and and Bob says that he and his wife wave back, but the kid keeps waving, and it becomes uncomfortable. So he gets up, and he walks down to him and introduces himself, and the young man says, uh, he says, I'm in love. And he says, "Uh, I was wondering if... uh, the girl I'm in love with, if I could propose to her in your backyard. And Bob Goff says, uh, yeah, yeah, you could do that. Yeah, that'd be fine. You know, he says, oh, great. And he kind of sprints off. A couple days pass and he comes back and he waves and Bob Goff waves and he comes down and meets him and he says, uh, man, I'm so excited about being able to, you know, propose to my girl in your backyard. He says, I was wondering if, uh, if it'd be okay if we had dinner on your porch. <laughs> and then after dinner, I would propose. And Bob Goff says, sure, that'd be okay. And before he could even say, what do you want us to make for you? He took off. He was so excited. Then a couple days later, he came back and he says, uh, you know, he says, I was wondering if I could have some friends over. And Bob Goff is thinking, you know, this kid has lost He's so in love. And see, this is where he really connects with us because he's just lost his social filter. This this kid doesn't know, you know, what's socially appropriate or not anymore because he's so in love. And he just, you know, he wants the whole world. He thinks the whole world is conspiring with him in this grand strategy he has to ask, this girl to marry him. And so he's going to have 20 people wait on them. And Bob agrees. He's now getting into it. He's, you know, he's energized by it. He's excited. It's contagious, right? And a few days pass and he comes back and he says, I was wondering after dinner and after my friends leave, if if you could put some speakers out so I could dance with her. Bob agrees. I'm not, this is right out of the story. And then finally he comes and he says, he says, I was wondering. He says, I've got this idea. He says, do you have a boat? (laughs) So it's all planned, right? But now Bob has his own part of the plan that he isn't going to share with Ryan. Now they've become friends, see? And they're all excited. The whole family's involved in this. And as I've told you, he's going to bring her up. They're going to have dinner. They're going to dance. And then Bob is going to pull up his boat, and they're going to get in the boat. And then on the bow of the boat, he's going to get down on one knee and propose. And that's what happens. But Bob has arranged with the Coast Guard because now they are into this thing too. They've been, you know, they've caught this contagion. And so they bring out this fire boat. And when Bob lets him know that she said, Yes, he gives the sign, and the water cannons start shooting off. 
and the spray and the light. <laughs> Pretty awesome. Love can be like that. By the way, Bob Goff ties it into the fact that he looks around at the creation and all the things that we sometimes take for granted, and he, he thinks that's God's way of adorning his love, the way that he sets up and conspires with the entire creation to show you and me how much he loves us. But I thought about that love that is so powerful that leads to marriage. I mean marriage. Marriage. A lifelong commitment, signing on the dotted line, putting everything on the table, saying it's you and me forever. That's pretty profound how that extraordinary experience leads to a commitment. And yet when all the instruments of our entire life are orchestrated and we say I do the power and the passion of love that has gone into that commitment what happens to it is it enough does it generate itself three years five years seven years 11 years 25 years 40 years later it does go through changes and all, but it's a relationship that grows and lives. And that's the way it is with the Christian life. We made a commitment to Jesus Christ. You might not have called it that. You might have called it something else, but you got down on one knee before the Lord and you said, Forgive me, take me, make me yours, be my Lord and Savior. But as the days unfold and the weeks and the months and the years, are we still inspired by Jesus Christ? Paul was. And others have been. It's not unusual. A living relationship in which Christ inspires us. In fact, with his resurrection, he pours his spirit out on us. And when we let his spirit have sway and room in our lives, Christ continues to make us vibrate with his love so that when we sing these songs, we're not just listening to the quality of our singing. The words are touching our heart, moving us emotionally, bringing tears to our eyes because it's speaking truths. It's talking about our relationship. It's talking about the reality and experience of our own lives. Jesus inspires. If we've lost that for some reason, we've got to return to our first love. 
inspire Christ-likeness. We can't inspire Christ-likeness unless we ourselves are inspired, unless he is coursing through our lives. That doesn't mean that we're constantly and daily infatuated. But there's a reality in which we live for him because he energizes us. And there is a level of life that is changed and transformed because of the reality of Jesus Christ in our lives. We reach out to others. That's love in action. We raise up one another. That's love in action. We reverence Christ together. That's love in action. I remember um, Friday night, Shelley and I were watching the news, and they had a, a segment on CBS Evening News. Now, I, maybe it would help you to know that I, I, re, I record ABC, NBC, and CBS News. I don't know why, but I just like to watch news. Anyway, I caught this segment on CBS Evening News, and it was about a middle school. We used to call that junior high. It was about a middle school, so seventh and eighth graders. And a lot's been in the news lately about middle school. Most tragic, a 12-year-old boy who took a gun to school, a 14-year-old boy who took a gun to school. But these middle school children, kids, they did something different. There was a, a boy. His name is Keith Orr. Um, he's described, and you see him in the picture, he's got a brown jacket on, but he's learning disabled. And he's kind of high maintenance, and he struggles with boundaries. And yet he's the sweetest possible kid. And somehow, we don't really know, it's not explained in this segment, but somehow the football team embraces Keith. He becomes popular to the football team. And they hatch this plan. And they scheme for weeks. Not even the coaches are in on it. In two plays, maybe two plays, what they're going to do is they're going to get the ball as close to the goal without going in as they possibly can. And then on the next play, they're going to give the ball to Keith. They're going to surround him, and they're going to bull their way into the end zone so that Keith can score a touchdown. And so you see this on this kind of scratchy video that somebody took from the stands, and there you see it. You see the kid, he's running. He's got a clear shot, and then he stumbles right before the goal. It looks really pretty clunky. And the crowd groans, you know, it's like they come out, they huddle. I don't know how it is that Keith's in a full uniform. He's in the midst. You see them all gather around. It looked really strange. It looked like a young girls or boys soccer match. But anyway, and they all bull in, and then he starts jumping up, and the whole team is celebrating, and this is what... I mean, the parents, you can hear them. It's amazing. And everyone is so happy. And then they ask this question of 
the wide receiver. They interviewed several of the team members. This guy's name is Justice Miller. He says, once I saw him go in, I was smiling to hear, pointing to his cheeks. Nothing could wipe that smile off my face. Why did it affect him so much? Justice gets emotional. And this is what he says. Because he's never been cool or popular. And he went from being like pretty much a nobody to making everyone's day. And then Justice admits the play wasn't his idea. In fact, he says, I, I would have not really thought of that. He says it never crossed his mind to give Keith any glory. And then he said this, and I quote, I kind of went from being somebody who mostly cared about myself and my friends to caring about everyone and trying to make everyone's day and everyone's life. That's that contagion. Somebody, I posted it on my Facebook page so others could view the video and see these kids interviewed. And somebody wrote something about Christians needing to do this, and I agree. But I thought to myself, who says they weren't? You know, you can make a difference for Christ in the middle, wherever you're at, even in junior high. You don't have to wait till you're an adult. And then when you get to be adult, sometimes you think you wish you'd done it when you're young because now you're too old, that kind of thing. Now, where you're at, you can make a difference when you let Christ inspire you, just like it inspired Paul. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Jesus the man for others. You and I can be the man or woman, the boy or girl for others in the strength, in the power, in the mantle of the one we follow, Jesus Christ. When I first became a Christian, I went to church. I remember it was such a, the church was packed. And it, like our church, but through into the foyer or lobby. And I got in and I was standing in the very, very back. The doors, I was up against the wall. And the lobby was, there was a big choir singing. And I was new. But I was excited about Jesus Christ. And I had this, I mean, do you remember that? And I stood in the back and I thought, God, you can use me even here, even in the very back. And I stood up as straight as I could. I tried to let people in the choir, because those were the only people looking at me, to see my countenance, to see Christ on my face. I want to see us keep that love, that countenance of Christ on our faces as his people, as his church. There are ways we can reach out, raise up. People discipled me. The pastor discipled me through his sermons. People in the congregation discipled me through caring. 
giving me their attention, giving me their time, inviting me to do things. And then there were people that invited to spend time with me in Bible study. Do you know that you can disciple others? You can inspire others? You can make a difference, a life difference for Jesus Christ in the life of another. Jesus did not come to call Christians. He came to call disciples. He said, make disciples, and we are to be disciplers. And we can disciple every Sunday when we're here on campus. We can be disciplers at home with our husbands and wives. We can be disciplers with our children, with our neighbors. Just as Paul said, talking about meat offered to idols, he says that I might save some. Everything I do, in every way I can, that I might save some. Now, actually, he doesn't say that I might save some. He says that some might be saved. And that's because Paul realizes the Lord is working through him and working in this world, and we can make a difference. When we come to worship, I don't have time to talk about worship, and that's a bummer. That's not good at all. The word worship means to bow down. We get the word worship itself in English from worship, Old English, which means to recognize or acknowledge the worthiness of the one who is worshipped. Satan asked Jesus in Matthew 4, 9 through 10, he asked him to bow down and worship. The same word, to bow down. The word translated worship. He asked him to get down and to worship, but it's the word literally means to prostrate yourself or bow down, which is to acknowledge our unworthiness and his worthiness. He says, if you do, I'll give you all things, showing him the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And Jesus responds with scripture. It is written, you are to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Serve only him. Out of his worthiness comes a heart of service. That's borne out in Revelation 4, 8 through 11. Around the throne of God are the seraphim, these heavenly creatures And when they give glory and honor and thanks to him, listen to that, glory, honor, and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, verse 10, it says, the 24 elders fall down before him. They worship. And then notice, they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by you will they exist. And they were created. Frederick Buechner says, God is no more in a church than he is anywhere else, but what makes a church holy in a special way is that we ourselves are more present in it. And what I mean, he says, is that if we come to a church right, We come to it more fully and nakedly ourselves, come with more of our humanness showing than we are apt to come to most places, and that is when we humble our hearts and recognize his worthiness. With head and heart, spirit and truth.
Will you bow your heads? I'd like to close with this prayer. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy is he. Sing a new song to him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy is he. Sing a new song. To him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. Holy, holy, holy is our Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. With all creation I sing, Praise to the King of kings. You are my everything, and I will adore you.